Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, June 8th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Owing to schedules, this is going to be one short podcast, so we're going to get right to it with Kamala Harris talking to Lester Holt on NBC News and uh, being asked why she hasn't been to the border, uh, where, as we know, she uh, has been given the assignment to help uh, solve the entire problem of uh, the U.S. border crossings uh, from Mexico. Um, her answer was, well, I haven't been to Europe either. I haven't well, been it to it must be either. watched to be believed, though. It's, you know, that, that you're giving her too much credit. I mean, I haven't been to Europe uh, in, in you know, in a year, you know, since the pandemic either, by the way. And so I guess I uh, should be solving the border. I mean, I'm trying to figure out what the logic was of, of what she said there. Well, you know, she was taken off guard a little bit because she she uh, had her signature cackle when she was answering the question, which is a sort of tell for her about her nervousness or anxiety on the question. Yeah, l- let's go into that because uh, you make a point of this in your forthcoming piece in Commentary uh, magazine about uh, Kamala Harris and uh, and the and the schools. Uh, I'm not the piece is not about it's about schools and unions, but um, Kamala Harris uh, delivered a very similar cackle uh, when she uh, said in her unbelievably lame and uh, embarrassing fashion in March or April that parents now understood just how hard it was to be a teacher now that they've actually had to be home with their children said the woman who has no children. And then she delivered the cackle. Yes, the cackle is the cackle is the tell. I think it's a tell of when she's feeling insecure about what she's about to say. And you saw it on the debate stage during the primaries quite a lot. When she's very scripted and very rehearsed as she was when she attacked Joe Biden for being a racist, she's calm. But when she's on the fly and actually having to answer questions in the way that one would hope the second most powerful person in our country would be able to do without cackling, she cackles. I encourage everyone to watch this video because we can't do it justice. The discomfort that you feel is Larry David-esque. It's a cringe-worthy moment. And this is exactly what Kamala Harris's aides feared when they told CNN that they were dismayed, quote, by the general perception that the vice president would be deemed the administration's border czar. She didn't want to be a border czar. She didn't want to be responsible for any sort of policy here. She wanted to be this ephemeral figure that was tasked with identifying root causes in an almost academic sense, not with actually tackling the symptoms of migration, e.g. the actual border crisis she was tapped to oversee. She is a remarkably maladroit politician, has been since she's been on the national stage, with you know making wild allegations against Brett Kavanaugh that go nowhere, the busing thing which she had no end game for, her constant dismissal of issues with this kind of flippant affect that she adopts in order to to make her make her interlocutors seem seem callous and casual. You know, you know a, cent- a central point. And then Abe, I want I want to jump to you, but a central point here is about Kamala Harris becoming a star during the Kavanaugh hearings. I mean, that was the general line was that she was a star. Uh, during the Kavanaugh hearings. And of course, the problem with this notion that she was a star during the Kavanaugh hearings is like everybody was a star during the Kavanaugh hearings. It's like how any anybody in America, there was a point which anybody in America could imitate Ethel Merman because like Ethel Merman was so affected a performer and to, that you could imitate Ethel Merman. 
and basically any liberal woman could be a star at the Kavanaugh hearings by by intoning the liberal line about Kavanaugh and then getting celebrated by the echo chamber that had put the intonation into their ears in the first place. So it is almost like a playwright writes a play and is the audience and then cheers the performance of his play and that somehow then has the Plato's Cave effect on the rest of the culture. And so, um, yeah, what we are seeing here is, look, she's got a long time before she has to run for president, I believe, you know, assuming that Joe Biden doesn't drop dead in office and he probably doesn't run again in 2024. She's got a long time to get her game up. But um, these performances are uh, jaw-dropping. Like, people spent years making fun of Dan Quayle. I mean, Dan Quayle was maladroit verbally. Like, he was maladroit in the way he put a sentence together. She is maladroit conceptually. That's an entirely different matter. Abe, So, uh, I, I agree entirely with, with, with Noah. I mean, so she doesn't didn't want to get tasked with um, making policy. I totally get that. But she didn't have to make policy. If if you say that she's going to t- be addressing the problem at the border, send her to the border for the optics. Who cares what comes out of it? I mean, I mean, we care. But if but if we know that 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 we're not, she's not going into this to actually figure out what to do. At least send her in so you don't get that question. Well, instead, well, I, she was in Guatemala announcing, "Do not oh, yeah. come, do not come." And she's today; she's in Mexico. But they've sent her to Central and South America to to say, "Stop coming." But she needs to be on the border, looking like whatever right. whatever optics um, they say the administration wants to see. Okay, I want to ask a question about this because in 2017, Jeff Sessions, then the Attorney General of the United States, gave a speech in which he said, "Do not come." He said, "Do not come." Everyone in Central America has to understand: if you come to the border, we will arrest you. We will turn you back. We will not let you into our country. Jeff Sessions was treated as though he were, you know, I don't know, you know, Hitler. And uh, she literally said nothing different. She said exactly what Jeff Sessions said. And we're supposed to give her a pass when, in fact, the whole point is there is nothing to say. That's the whole problem with the, this border crisis is we got a 1,900-mile border. Um, the only thing to say is for Biden to get up and say, do not come, or for Biden to stand at the border and say, we will arrest you, or something like that, because the message went forth because of Democratic talking points and liberal whining and moaning and bemoaning and shrying and crying and geshrying about the monstrous acts at the border that once Trump was gone, it was party time, um, it, you know, by the Rio Grande. But but not just by liberal activists. Biden himself during the campaign said, we need to rush the migrants to the border. That's, that right. was, that's what he said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it because he we need them here to deal with the basil of war or the basil of war excuse me that's basil faulty who and we if you also want someone is to similar handle your to basil it's it's no one if americans would take the jobs handling the basil <laughs> that's right so so basically um you know i think it's it is important to note that the blocking tackles represented by the mainstream media in their incredibly gentle treatment of of uh, particularly of liberal women politicians, but also of liberal politicians in general and all that, 
is a is a long term catastrophe for these people because you can't brush this stuff under the rug for all that long. I mean, you're, you get first of all, you make them think that they're not making mistakes that they need to correct by not hammering them so sufficiently that they figure out how to redirect their lines and attention and all of that. But you just build up a giant portfolio, a, a giant, you know, file folder full of Kamala-isms and Kamala behavior and Kamala this and Kamala that that just becomes a colossal political liability over time with those 10% of people in the middle who are going to decide all the elections, you know, going forward. And the familiar engine has already revved to life defending her and uh, defending her from, from criticisms because you're sexist. Nobody can criticize a woman unless they're sexist. Obviously, her her achievements in the world of politics from becoming, uh, you know, a, the California's AG to a U.S. Senate to the vice presidency means demonstrates her capability as a, as a politician, as though we've never had maladroit vice presidents before, as though vice presidents have never been chosen solely you know, for the deficiencies they shore but, up in the principle. But, but look, I'm sorry, let me just quickly say, Dan Quayle... <laughs> Became senator, became the senator from Indiana at the age of 29. And before George H.W. Bush picked him as vice president, was the shepherd, the sponsor, the writer of a major piece of American social legislation on job retraining. Not that I really care about job retraining. Dan Quayle was 41 years old. He was a bad pick. He was a mistake. Uh, you know, he did Bush more harm than good. But the fact that he was the most successful young politician of his age in America and somebody, moreover, whose stewardship of a piece of legislation became the subject of several doctoral dissertations about how you get through things through the Senate and through the Congress and into law, that didn't matter to anybody. What mattered to people was his comportment, his behavior, the things he said when he was vice president. That's what mattered. And yeah, you can give her a pass the way you don't give Quayle a pass. She's not going to get a pass. The pass is not absolute or lifelong. Well, the pass she was given, uh, she's, she's, they're trying to give her a pass. But the real mistake here was made by the way that Biden chose her and talked about her and ran with her as his running mate throughout. It was because she was a black woman. He was explicit about that. He said that was driving his choice. It was seen as a reward to the black women coming to the, you know, come to the polls. I'll, I'll put this black woman on my ticket. Everything about that pick was related to identity politics, which is why nobody, the American public will now not buy this this line that the media is trying to feed them, that criticism of her is, is, you know, sexist or racist. That's the whole reason she was picked. So if she's actually incompetent at doing some of the, the uh, part of her job, which is mainly messaging, right? It's to stay out of trouble, message the president's message, support the president, stay out of the way, do the crappy jobs like be the bar- borders are. She's not even managing those in a halfway. And her her, her uh, popularity levels have remained far lower than Biden's. She's not popular. And, and just to, you know, add one potential here, the, the real concerted effort on the part of culture makers and uh, political observers to avoid acknowledging the obvious, which is that this administration is hilarious, <laughs> is not going to last. The basil of war is going to be noticed by people. This woman's bizarre 
discomfort in her own skin is going to be noticed by people and it's going to be lampooned. And if you don't, you don't take that opportunity, somebody else will. I mean, the point is that the right is already taking notice and the right is building up. And therefore there is of course a standard now issue, uh, circle the wagons, anything the right says is wrong. You can't, you know, don't give them credence. It's not fair. You know, they're being unfair and all of that. And, and that, that lasts, that can go only so far because a person who blunders the way Kamala Harris blunders is going to blunder in ways that are fundamentally and finally unignorable. She can be as woke as you can possibly be. But that thing that she said about parents and teachers, much more important than this I didn't go to Europe thing, which is itself, you know, like a line out of Veep. I mean, it is literally something that Selena Meyer could have said in Veep, um, uh, you know, in a desperate effort to get herself out of some box that she had put herself in, right? I mean... Uh, it, it's textbook, uh, but the thing that she said about parents and teachers was, "Hey, you know all those people, those people out there, everybody who actually lives an ordinary, normal life. Ah, screw them." <laughs> you know, I mean, that is her mindset. That is her milieu. That is where she comes from. That is the way she looks at suffering Americans who had to stay home from work for a year because nobody was there to take care of their children while the teachers whom she is sucking up to are playing a long-range political game, which, again, she can support. And, you know, it's just a question of what the emphasis is and what it says about her mindset and what it says about her being able to communicate to people. And Biden is doing her an incredible solid Biden has decided that he, in some weird way, he was mistreated by Obama. He wasn't given enough to do, even though he said he did this and he did that and he did the other thing. He wasn't going to do this to his vice president, what was done to him, or what what Kennedy did to Johnson, or what, you know, uh, what Nixon did to Agnew. Like, he was going to make her a full partner. But she can't be a full partner because she is an idiot, I mean, I don't mean that she's not doesn't have a high Q. I don't. I mean that in some fundamental sense, as a politician, we saw her idiocy. In she blew herself up. She got herself the moment, the breakout moment of the 2020 campaign was Kamala Harris's moment, where she says, "I was that little girl on the bus that you wanted to derail, or you wanted to, you know, shoot the tires out, whatever it was. I was that girl, and it was." A breathtaking political moment, to be fair. And she, as Noah said, had nowhere to go with it. Like, you don't do that. You want to have five steps beyond. Well, she I mean, she has terrible political instincts. She obviously occasionally gets it right when advisors script something for her, as they did for that debate moment. But, I mean, look, anyone who, dates Mon- who dated Montel Williams can't be seen to have good judgment. But she's very much someone who is trying, I think the reason, it's something Noah said earlier, which really uh, stuck with me, she's not comfortable in her own skin. There is a kind of weird um, anxiety she she emanates when she's in those off-the-cuff situations that a good politician doesn't show. They might feel it, but they don't reveal it. They, they have a kind of demeanor or mean in a way of behaving with the media and with constituents that, that seems more natural. She's very false. 
Like there's something that I think an average American listening to her, and John, to your point, that's why that statement about parents was so jarring. I mean, someone whose step grown stepdaughter is an Instagram influencer and Vogue model probably shouldn't be speaking to the needs of the average American parent right now. I mean, this is not she she's she's the wrong messenger, but she even her message is off. It's just Look, she's she, off. She can. She's not, you know, her stepdaughter uh, or is not her, you know, she you know, she's not her stepdaughter's keeper. Her inability to deliver a message, a coherent message to people about whatever it is that she's doing is entirely deeply rooted in her herself. And that's, you know, and I think ultimately what's happened, and let's go back to the policy that she, you know, she's in Central America, Lester Holt says, you haven't been to the border, and she could say... Well, hold on, Lester. Like, I wasn't going to the border because we were setting up the administration. I mean, they're like, I could do it from a standing start. We're setting up the administration, dealing with COVID. We have a lot of important things going on in relation to education and, you know, reopening America and getting my seat so that I'm in the position where I'm in the sit room. I understand what's going on with Iran and all of that. And we are now, I'm now turning my attention and focus to this matter and you know you you bet your you bet your bippy I'm going to be there at the border doing my surveys and all of that. Like I That's just a, did that. I just did that right now. I yep. didn't plan it. But John, John it's, it's, it's 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 far better, obviously, than what she said. I still don't think there is a. It's not sufficient because I don't think there is a sufficient answer. I think it. I think the thing aside from it pointing out um, Kamala's. Uh, discomfort in her own skin and her and her maladroitness and the rest of it. I think it also does point to this problem in um, competence in the administration. I mean, just just in the in the basics of it was a good question because why didn't she go to the border just to just for the photo shoot just to just to answer the question? But better. we know yeah. why yeah. she didn't go to the border because the Democratic photo op at the border is the photo op that says, "Look how mean America is being to these migrants." Suddenly they're in charge now and they're the ones who are being mean to the migrants. Like your only photo op is to walk around crying over the people in the cages. Well, but speaking of. When the cages are your cages. But they're, but by not, but Abe is right. By not kind of getting ahead of the messaging themselves, the administration is ceding the narrative to the um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's and squad members of the world who have been pretty active on social media saying, now they're not being as vitriolic as they were with Trump, but they're very disappointed in some of the statements the administration has made. Lots of disappointment and, and earnest hand-wringing expressed, but they will, they will up the stakes on, on their rhetoric if they see it being politically viable for them to do so. So they are, I think it's a missed opportunity for the Biden administration to tamp down his left flank about border issues too. But but he can't tamp it down. And here's why I say he can't tamp it down, because if he fi- if they find themselves in a position where they are standing at the border, they have two choices, one of which is essentially to throw the cards in and say, you know, we are who we've been for the last five or six years. We are going to be, you know, sentimental and, you know, open hearted and crying and all this about everything that's going on here. And then we'll just see what happens. Look, America is about to undergo a labor short. We were already in a position where it appears we're in a labor shortage. Maybe we need illegal aliens <laughs> to do some work. I mean, I, I don't even know, right? There's that. And then the other is, and if he does that, then 
hand the Republicans a giant big, you know, softball of softballs to go into 2022 with. Because remember, Americans did finally start associating falsely rising crime with illegal immigration. Now, I think it's a false uh, alignment, but uh, that alignment has been made. We're going to be in a position of rising crime. We might be in a position of, you know, a a border crisis with more migrants coming over the border than has ever been the case and all of that. And you are just creating a public safety and sovereignty issue that Republicans can hit over the fence. And if you go the other way, right, and say, sorry, there's a new sheriff in town, we're going to be nicer, we're building nicer facilities, everyone's going to have a mattress, we're going to have air conditioning, we're going to make sure that families stay together, we're going to do whatever we can, we're going to, we're going to hire Mercedes-Benz limos to drive them all back to Honduras and Guatemala, whatever it is that you're going to say, you still have to say something. And then the question is how you say it so that it doesn't trigger a democratic civil war or get Jacob Soboroff to write a sequel to his book and cry at the border if, in fact, MSNBC would ever allow an anti-Biden line about the border to emerge. Now, before we uh, before we continue, um, let me just talk to you again about ExpressVPN. Uh, you know, there was uh, another uh, massive uh, outage, uh, internet outage uh, yesterday, which uh, points to the fact that everything is kind of connected, things are connected, and one of the reasons they're connected and they're connected in the way they're connected is to make sure that big tech can share the information that it gets off of you and 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 sell it to each other and market to you and use your information not only to help you make choices, but also kind of against you to kind of seduce you into stuff. Uh, you know, and that is why I use ExpressVPN. So much of our lives are on the internet with every site we visit, video we watch, and message we send getting tracked and data mined. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address, something big tech can use to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers, and it also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. And ExpressVPN does all this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. And it's easy to use. Download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you are protected. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopolies that mine your activity and sell your information and then go down and screw up your ability to connect with the people you actually want to connect with. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary right now to earn more. Uh, okay, uh, where do we go from here? I'm going back to Kamala. You are? <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm not done with her, no. Okay. Because I, I genuinely don't think that the Biden administration has made a, a, a comprehensible calculation here, and it's one that they've apparently gone all in on to the extent that they're pot committed. Um, if she was chosen to be a political asset to the administration because she can speak to progressives and progressive interests. We have no evidence that progressives respond to her in a favorable way. If she's been chosen to uh, juice uh, turnout among minority demographics, particularly black Democrats, we have no evidence that she's done that or she's capable of that. When black Democrats turned out in droves in the primaries, they turned out to vote for Joe Biden, not Kamala Harris. Um, She's proven herself incapable of navigating the various controversies she's been tapped to navigate, including his, her most recent, this voting voting rights bills 
uh, that are passing through state legislatures, most of which are being maligned unfairly and unjustly by Democrats that they do things that they that they Democrats say they do that they do not. Um, and even if they did do the things that Democrats allege, what on earth can the vice president do about them? She's going to have a portfolio that she can't demonstrate any efficacy addressing any of these issues. She's just going to say, well, I was there and I, I oversee this sort of thing. But what did you deliver? So the Biden administration has tapped this person to be a lot of things she's not. And I don't think they can go back because of the branding effort. I mean, it's just it's the Biden-Harris administration. It's all over the, the, the letterheads. So I don't know what could, what decision they've made here. And whether they can even, even if they do recognize that they've made a mistake, which seems pretty apparent now, that they can go back on it. They just seem to be sleepwalking towards disaster. Okay, now before we get all uh, conservative bubbly and in our own, you know, in our own, uh, in our own lane, um, I, I think it is important to note that the Biden administration uh, may find itself in a position that we really, you know, haven't seen yet uh, because of uh, some of the dumb, really dumb mistakes that they made, like the, like the extension of the unemployment benefits, which was, which was really dumb. And what I mean is um, Goldman Sachs, a a lot of the people who are projecting economic growth now, what they're looking at in terms of uh, the second quarter uh, for uh, 2021, uh, which I guess we see reports on in July, I think, right? Because the second quarter ends June 30th. I mean, like my friend David Bonson says in his newsletter today, he says, we're going to see a double-digit GDP print for Q2, right? I mean, we're going to see a 10, 10% growth, something like that. And as he says, like, do you think what it might be if they hadn't done the unemployment insurance stuff? Um, good times could be coming for Biden. They really could. We haven't, we, we have been living, we live so much in the day-to-day, hour-to-hour reality, particularly on social media, that we haven't really taken account of what it could mean for Biden to have these numbers. Now, policy-wise, it screws them up because the desperate need for gigantic federal subventions into the economy if if we're growing at 10%, yeah, that, that you, it's uh, harder to make that case. And Joe oh, mentioned, no, no. No? no, 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 the shift is already happening. You, if you can't make the case on economic terms because the economic picture is no longer so bleak, you make it on racial terms, which is what's uh, the voting rights bill is the is the canary in the coal mine for this, but they will shift a lot of the infrastructure bill has to do with, you know, the things that are not actually infrastructure that you'll see the shift. It'll now become battling white supremacy, which is a problem that will never disappear according to Democrats. So that I think, I think ideologically and messaging wise, they're, they're going to be able to switch very quickly to that. Um, Now the one thing that they won't be able to talk about well, and actually weirdly would have been the one kind of counterintuitive, interesting thing to, to put Kamala on Kamala, sorry, uh, would be crime. You know, Biden's Biden's uh, legislative record on that is clear. He denied it was the one thing he rejected as, as a candidate. But she also has an interesting kind of tough on crime uh, history. Embracing a little bit of that uh, in the current moment might actually reassure a lot of those voters that right now are, are saying in, in survey responses that that's one of their number one concerns, certainly if they live in cities. I mean, Here's the problem, and, uh, you know, if we're going to play racial politics, let's play racial politics. So, yeah, okay, so they'll play the race card. That's great. 
72 percent of the country is white so i don't really understand you know if what you're talking about is the question of whether or not the presidency of the united states in the hands of a you know of a guy who who got 81 million votes if he if he is going to play his presidency to a minority group even if it is you know the largest minority group in the country which by the way it it, it, it even isn't um uh that's weird like that's a weird that is a weird approach it's one thing to say we really need to you know do what we can to help you know people including with systemic racism and all of that it's another to say that the entirety of the federal government's approach on the economy has to be is directed and designed but, to, uh, to lift lift a very specific population but but who loves that um, the media and white liberals yeah, white people. Yeah, just because seventy two percent of white yeah. people are white, people. a significant proportion of them respond to whatever racially reparative policy you say they have to commit to because that's they hate the, racial conflict. That's the equity language too. That's why they're equity, equity, equity. It's baked into all of their big policy proposals. I know, but we don't we don't know how that plays. We, I'm not saying that white people are going to say, "Oh, I'm white, so this isn't going to help me." So the hell with them. You know, I mean, sure that will be the case with. A, a lot of Republican voters and all that. I'm not even talking about that, but I mean the number of people who are who are motivated by 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 wokeness in terms of whether or not they're going to support you know trillions of dollars of new spending. I don't know. I mean, do we have any evidence that that's real? I, I, I we don't. I mean, uh, you know, again, everything we're talking about here is sotto voce anyway. It's like it's not anything that the response that would be negative or the response that would be that wouldn't necessarily show up in polls, would show up at the polling places. That stuff, uh, that's always going to be quiet. That's always going to be the quiet part out loud. That that's that's all I'm, you know, that's really all I'm I, I'm saying. Um, and uh, and you know it's interesting you talk about this uh, social order and disorder issue, so not to focus you know uh, unnecessarily on 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 New York City, but uh, New York City, uh, which is has eight and a half million people, has a primary in two weeks, which is the most important local election in the country, simply by dint of the fact that New York is the largest city in the country, and the primary winner will almost certainly be the next mayor. And you have a very interesting phenomenon going on, which is the charge uh, to, to the front of Eric Adams. Why is that interesting? Well, Eric Adams is um, uh, a, a former police officer, but he was an anti-police police officer. That was his entire mode and reason for being in the 1990s. He ran something called 100 Black Men in Law Enforcement Who Care. And it was a group that sort of sided with Al Sharpton against the police and talked about, you know, racial injustice and on all of this. And uh, Eric Adams, uh, seeing the opportunity represented in the polls by the declining, by the by the worries in, uh, in the, among New Yorkers about social disorder, um, he has... Uh, remark, you know, he has now surged to the lead over Andrew Yang, apparently. I mean, who knows? Because it's a very complicated primary. Um, as the tough on crime guy. So this is like the John Kerry pitch working, right? John Kerry became a famous American politician because he was an anti-Vietnam War veteran. And then in 2004, he just shows up and he's like, Sergeant Kerry, whatever he was, Lieutenant Kerry reporting for service, you know, saluting and... There he was, Mr. 
you know, Mr. Uh, you know, army guy, Mr. military guy. Uh, you know, and 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 uh, it didn't work in part because of the swift boats counterattack. Um, but it seems to be working for Eric Adams now. How now? How or maybe maybe working for Eric Adams, and how that can be adapted in other places is 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 an interesting question. But the point is that you have all these other people running for office, and all they're doing is talking down the cops and Eric Adams and saying, "Hey, I was a cop." And that is supposed to mean that he'll be good on on crime. He won't be, by the way. Chances are, he may be neither good nor bad on crime. He's a he's not an impressive person. Eric Adams is what I'm trying to tell you. But that's an interesting hinge moment you know, for the left because doesn't it just say that the bar to clear for being a tough on crime politician is now so low that you could trip over it. Well, yes, but we're only at the beginning, I fear, we're only at the beginning of the crime surge, right? I mean, we... It's still the number one priority for New York City voters, Democratic voters. It It is the number one priority for Democratic voters in New York City, but what I'm saying is that the the results of being the low-bar candidate have yet to show up. In other words, let's say Adams wins... And then he really isn't that good on on these issues, and crime continues to worsen. If he gets in because people said, "Well, he's the guy who might be able to help us with this," uh, and he doesn't help us with this, then woe betide him and every other progressive politician as the decade progresses. This is a slow build problem uh, in a city in which the Republican Party. There are Republicans all have, you know, did historically way better uh, than anybody than they should have or ever could have in part because of social disorder issues. Right. Well, that this, was, yeah, this is but this is an important point because you're right that we're in a kind of weird um, uh, purgatorial transition moment on the crime issue because we've seen we saw in Philadelphia the uh, uh beating back a primary challenger of the, the very progressive uh, AG there. And in other cities where there are progressive prosecutors uh, who are elected, if they get reelected, I, I would guess if the crime wave continues, particularly in those cities, that's good. There's going to be a backlash to that kind of progressive prosecutor, at least I hope so for the sake of the people who right. live in those cities. Um, but that, but right now we're seeing people still giving the benefit of the doubt to this idea that the entire justice system needs reform. You know, we're still not that far. We're only a year, almost a year away from all the, you know, the summer of, of protests and riots. And, and so I think people are still willing to take that risk and, and the mayoral Maybe. election in New York might prove. Right. The but there, wa- there was another mayoral election last week in Fort Worth, Texas, um, that is also interestingly suggestive. It's a weird race. Uh, it's a nonpartisan primary. So uh, candidates were known, the two candidates were known as being aligned with the Democratic Party and aligned with the Republican Party, but there were no lines on the uh, on the ballot. And one was a sort of conventional Republican candidate um, and, and the other was a woke liberal uh, in a city that is, I believe, 80% Hispanic or or is considered 80% Hispanic, and the Republican won. Um, and this is yet another data point in the uh, uh, guys don't assume if somebody has, you know, uh, an O at the, you know, has an initial at the end of their name or, you know, has the name Miguel or Joaquin or, you know, what that they are, that they are going to be, 
reliable Democratic voters anymore. I mean, particularly in a state like Texas, obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, stuff is going on there. And that was an interesting race because there's no question that the woke candidate was too left for the city and the district uh, party, she 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 ended up becoming the 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 candidate anyway, in part as a kind of test. I think if you really look at this in historical terms, it was sort of a test of how far this could go. And uh, wokeness failed this test in the you know increasingly purple state of Texas. Right, it's not purple yet, and twenty twenty two may show that it, it's it's going to bounce back very red, but it's kind of close. And a, a city like Fort Worth could have been a place where you would have seen the kind of avalanche effect, where you would have said, aha, you know, oh boy, they're coming. They have an interesting message for young people. And uh, the opposite happened. And you know what else uh, needs to happen? You need to get yourself an ex-chair. I'm not going to tell you again. I am going to tell you again as long as they buy ads. But I'm going to tell you right now. Because I've been telling you time and time again, you got to get yourself the X chair. I'm sitting in one right now. It's that patented dynamic variable lumbar support offering unbelievable support to my lower back and that new XHMT technology that provides heat and massage therapy while sitting at your desk, right to your core, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy, and four different massage modes. Instead of my old uncomfortable office chair, now I look forward to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel the X chair difference for yourself. Trust me, this is the luxury supercar of office chairs. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. Then you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. So uh, we got to go. Anybody have anything uh, of incredible moment that you wish to share with our listeners? There, there are so many 15-year cicadas where I live right now that they're showing up on like weather radar. <laughs> it's, it's horrifying and disgusting, kind of fascinating. So there, I've shared. Okay, but <laughs> I checked with my sister Naomi, uh, who, uh, as I was, was a resident of D.C. 34 years ago in 1987. It's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen, the cicada year. It was disgusting. There was literally not a room on the, the, the sidewalks. You had to walk over cicada corpses just to get from your car into a door of a house, all of that. And uh, my documentary evidence from one witness is it's really not as bad as it was then. So I had it worse yeah. than you. It wasn't as bad 15 you, years let ago. Me tell too, yeah. you, <laughs> let me tell you right now. I'm telling you right now that we old people, it was worse then than it is now. And we had to walk uphill, uphill both ways both to ways school. Through cicadas. Yes. <laughs> it, it was, I was here for the previous one, the 15, the one 15 years ago, and it, it was worse. Yeah. They're so sorry, 17. Yeah. yeah 17, it was worse right. that one, that time too. Okay. But, good. So. Anyway, the important thing is that here in New York City, we have many problems. We have homelessness. We have junkies. We have, we have, uh, we have, uh, Maya Wiley running for mayor. We have all kinds of problems. I haven't seen a cicada. So this is a joy. This is, the urban joy of not actually having a cicada around there. 
we have now justified remaining in New York while all the sane people like Noah have run the hell in the other direction. No cicadas out here either. I haven't seen a one this year. There's usually like one or two. Okay. But nothing. All right. Well, I still lord. I'm st- okay, <laughs> so fine. Sorry. I, that, 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 that's I'm sorry. I didn't, sorry. didn't mean work. to do that to you. It didn't New York work. City is superior to New okay. Jersey and everything's yes. even Okay. Away. All right. So uh, we will be back to you tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, Noam, John Bonhoritz, keep the candle burning. Thank you.